I thought about it in terms of the lesson, and I thought, well, you know, the whole lesson in a sense is a tribute, at least in my house, to my mom, because uh, we grew up. Uh, my mom was, was principally responsible for my dad finding the Lord, and uh, uh, then we grew up in a wonderful Christian home. Uh, it was a home without a lot of money, but there was always money available for us to go to every youth group retreat, every youth group event, every mission trip. There was never any question about how mom, that, but that mom and dad would find a way for us to have what we needed to grow in the Lord. And that was a wonderful thing. And so as I wrote the lesson this week, and I wrote the lesson on the word redeemed, echoing, ah, well, you've missed the flowers. I've got to go back and give them flowers for Mother's Day. Let's see, that didn't work either. Are we in a new place? Or an old place there? Happy Mother's Day. I worked hard on that picture. It started as a little seed, and I would put water on it each day. Anyway, thank you, Richard, for pointing out. Uh, I grew up in a home, and, and as I wrote the lesson this week on Redeemed, there were these songs that kept coming to my mind that have the word redeemed. Redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever, I am. And, and these, there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah. I, all of these songs that echo, uh, uh, verses that I memorized as a child echoing in my brain. Because redemption and a Redeemer is something we learned about as a child. But it was wonderful for me to prepare this lesson because I got to look at some aspects of redeem in that word that even though I grew up understanding and, and being taught and singing about and, and learning Bible verses about redeem and, and redemption and, and redeemer. Uh, uh, there's something about learning more as you get older. And it's like, you know, I got a good ice cream sundae growing up. But as we learn more and we see more, we get that cherry on top, or we get the different layers, or we get the whipped cream. And that's always really nice. And, and I use that as an example for us, because in this class, we've been talking about Paul's metaphors that he used for salvation. And we covered the fact that Paul uses as a metaphor justified. And we talked about reconciled. Then we did adopted. And then we did reckoned. But today we're doing redeemed. And if you read about it from a scholarly perspective, the scholars are concerned about, well, what exactly did Paul mean when he wrote redeemed? There's a huge body of Jewish material on that word, redeemed. Was Paul looking to his Jewish material? But there's also good Greek and Roman material. Was Paul looking that way? And there was a theologian named Adolf Deisman who in, I think, the 30s wrote a book trying to argue that when Paul uses the word redeemed, he means it in the Roman and Jewish. And I look at all of that and, and, and my response is, you know, Paul was uniquely God's composite fella. God, Paul was not simply a Jew evangelizing in a Greek world. He had his feet firmly planted from childhood on in both. And so I see Paul as someone who's writing redeemed, understanding it with his Jewish mentality he was brought up with, but then as he's out in the Roman world and he's evangelizing and he sees how the word is being used in the Roman world, 
That's the cherry on top. That's the extra layer. That's the whipped cream. That makes the Sunday even more tasty because the word redeemed has incredible connotations for us as a redeemed community, both from the Jewish world and from the, the, the Roman world. Does that make sense? So I'm not one of these guys, I, I, if it were a multiple choice test, you've got the theologians, you know, when Paul used the word redeemed, what social cultural context did it come from? A, Jewish. Well, 80% of the scholars, or maybe 90% will check that because it fits and it's so full. B, Roman. Well, maybe 10 to 20% might check that. I'm not checking either one. I'm going to write in C, all of the above. Because it doesn't have to be A or B. Paul's this full person. I can talk to you about redeemed right now, and as a, a man of 48, I'm going to talk to you about it differently than I would have if I would talked to you when I was 30. We could probably do this lesson again in another 10 years. I might have some more sprinkles to put on top of the whipped cream and the cherries. But it wouldn't invalidate what I'd already taught. Unless I found out I'd been wrong or something. Which is always possible. But uh, not on this lesson today. This stuff's cold. This is, this, is, uh, this is straight on. So let's talk about first redeemed in Judaism. Then we're going to talk about what Paul had from his Jewish heritage. Then we're going to talk about it from the Roman perspective. Then we're going to go to the scriptures themselves and see where Paul used it. But we've got to focus on the word first. And, and this word, in, in Judaism, the, there, there are several words that in Hebrew were used, ultimately would be translated as redeemed. But several words. And those words give the idea of delivering or saving. If someone's drowning, it's the lifeguard pulling them out of the water. There, it's it's a, a, an aspect of that word is being redeemed. Another is to be set free. If you've been enslaved or you've been handcuffed or you've been whatever, the, the, the idea of setting you free is an idea that's translated many times redeemed. Another idea is to pull someone away from danger. You know, you, you, you've got uh, uh, someone out there and, and they're in a dangerous situation. Uh, it's a fireman who's got a young kid who's, who's trapped in a fire and they pull him away from danger. Or you see someone, a, a, a small child who's about to put their hand near a hot item and you pull them away from danger. That's redeeming. Okay. In the Old Testament sense. That's redeeming in the sense of the Hebrew word. So I want you to have the full flavor of that idea of redeem. And then let's look at some actual Old Testament places where it talks about it. Redeemed in the Old Testament sort of comes into two different categories. There's this major category of social redemption where I would redeem or you would redeem. It's something that we do culturally to each other and for each other. The word redeem in the Hebrew concept is, is, is huge. It's big. On the idea that we, we have a responsibility of redeeming, of, re, uh, of redemption. Okay? It's, a, it's a human thing. But in addition to the human aspect of it, there is redemption as a metaphor for what God does in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament gives us that as well. Let's start with the social redemption. 
There are, depends on which scholar you're reading as to how they break it up, but I followed Untermeyer's breakup and it's in your lesson. That's what we'll use for teaching. From the way he divides it up, in, in the redemption, that this is everyday social redemption. Social meaning us, our culture. I could have put cultural redemption. Interaction redemption. The way we redeem each other. One area is land and houses. When God gave the promised land to Israel, He said, hey, this land's really mine. I'm dividing it up among you different families. And I expect it to stay within the families that I'm giving it to. Ultimately, it's mine though. And so I get to dictate how this goes down. And here is how it's going to go down. Let's say that you're broke. And you need a loan. Or you need some money. You might sell your house. Well, if you sell in your house, now there are some exceptions to all, some fine legal niceties to all of this. The fine print, this doesn't apply to houses that were built within a walled city, within da 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 da. So ignore all of that. Let's talk general rules, okay? You got a house and a field, and you're broke, and you need some money. You take your house and your field, and you find someone who's willing to buy it, and you sell it to them. Now, in the Old Testament, under Jewish law, if this was done, that family or that person that bought it got to keep it until one of two things happened. Either the year of Jubilee came along, which happened every 50 years, at which point the property reverts back, or someone who is related to you comes and buys the land back. They redeem the land. So that it stays within the family. A kinsman redeemer. So if uh, uh, I get flat broke and I've got to sell my house, one of uh, my, my family is, is given the opportunity and expected to step in and to buy it back to keep it within the family. Does that make sense? We see a good example of it in, in the story of Ruth. Um, there was... Okay, that's not legitimately for sale. I kind of like combine two pictures. Do not be deceived and get on the internet trying to buy that puppy. Okay, that's actually a gate into a city. Okay, but let's say it's for sale. You have a chance to go in and buy it back. Now the problem in, in for example, Ruth, Ruth is, is not a Jew herself by birth, but she marries a Jew, Right? And he dies, leaving her a widow. What happens? Y'all remember the story? Ultimately, Boaz steps in to redeem and buy back the property. And with the property, he gets uh, the widow. Okay? Now, but, but he, Boaz, was not the closest kinsman to redeem. There was another one that was closer, that had the right of first refusal, if you will. And Boaz has to go to him and say, hey, you can buy back the land. That's your option. Uh, but by the way, if you do it, you've got to take the widow. And you know how your wife's going to get real upset when you come home with another one and she's going to dilute the bloodline and all of that mess. At which point the guy says, uh, I pass. Uh, you get it. And so Boaz gets the land. And he buys it back to keep it within the family. Right? 
That's the redemption. That land was redeemed. Second kind of social redemption are indentured servants. Let's say you may not have a house, but you're flat broke. And you owe somebody money. And they're knocking on the door. You owe me money. Where is it? I ain't got it. Okay, I'll take you. Or I'll take your kids. And they can work it off. And you are my servant. They don't, the, you, you couldn't enslave a Jew. But you will be my indentured servant until you pay off the debt. And so that would happen. And there would be an opportunity to redeem that servant if someone in the family would step in and pay the obligation. They're redeeming the servant. Make sense? So, for example, Elisha sees the widow. The widow's crying. The widow's got a couple of kids. Her husband's dead. Left her with a lot of debt. She doesn't know what she's going to do, so the kids are going to have to be put into indentured serviture. She loses her children to pay off the debt that her, her dead husband left her with. Elisha says, wait, there's a better way. Y'all go get all the jars you can. They get all the jars. He says, now take that little jar you had of oil and start pouring it out. They fill up every jar to the brim. He says, go sell that, pay off the debts, keep your kids. That was her opportunity by making the payment. She redeemed those children from their servitude. So that's a second kind of redemption, indentured servants. A third kind of redemption are what scholars call cultic offerings. That still engenders some negative in me every time I read it or use it or say it because I don't like to call Judaism a cult. I don't like to call Christianity a cult. But in a, in a proper English sense, a cult means a religious group. It doesn't mean a wacko religious group like we use it. So when scholars talk about it being a cultic offering, they just mean within this religious group. They don't mean, there's no wacko connotation to the scholastic word cult. Okay? So I use the scholastic term that Untermeyer used, but, but know that this is not any reference that, that Judaism was a wacko religion. I don't mean it that way at all. This is not that type thing. But within Judaism... The Jews would have to make sacrifices for various things. Let's say that you're a Jew and you made a vow. I vow that if, if God will help me here, or if this will happen, or if you know, the Rockets can win without Tracy McGrady, without Dikembe Mutombo, and without Yao Ming, if we can beat the almighty Lakers, then I will sacrifice three uh, sheep. <laughs> One for each of those three players that are down. Maybe two sheep and a goat. I won't tell you which one's the goat. Um, now, and then the Rockets win. Oh, man. I don't really want to lose those sheep. What can I do? I can redeem that offering. It's kind of like a big pawn shop deal going on. <laughs> Because you can buy back the sheep before they get killed, but they get to add 20% on. So you've got to pay the temple an extra 20%. That's kind of the pawn shop element. So it's kind of God saying, hey, you really want it back, you can have it back, but it's going to cost you. Don't brashly make these oaths if you're not willing to follow through. 
So that was another thing you could redeem. You could redeem uh, the cultic offerings. Now that you couldn't, you couldn't just like go and say, "Hey, uh, uh, this big sin offering, I just as soon not do that." I mean, sin offerings are a different thing. But this is for vows and and uh, the, what we might call the lesser offerings, if you will. Okay. A fourth type is the firstborn. And this comes out of the Exodus. What God said during the Exodus is uh, to get Israel out of slavery, God slew the firstborn of all of Egypt, whether animals or people, right? And God says, because I did this, every Israelite, you owe me your firstborn of your animals. You sacrifice them to God. You also owe me your firstborn sons. God says, the way I'm going to do it is instead of each one of you actually having to tender your firstborn son into my service, I'll just take the Levites. But you still dedicate your firstborn son to us, to, to God. And so this is what God says. And this is what happens. And we see that even in Jesus, if you go to Luke chapter 2, after 40 days when Mary and Joseph go to the temple so Mary can present her own offering for her own purification from childbirth, they take Jesus and dedicate Him. And Luke specifically says, because the Scripture says, and he quotes the Old Testament Scripture, that the firstborn is mine. So Jesus is dedicated to the Lord as firstborn son of Mary and Joseph. It's the same principle. Your firstborn son is dedicated to the Lord. And, and uh, mothers and grandmothers, it doesn't need to be that much different today, though in a special way all of our children are dedicated to the Lord. And you have children dedication services for all children. But I can remember growing up, my mom saying to me, hey, you were special to, to, to God, He made you, and He gave you to me, but I gave you back to Him. You're in His service. I heard that from the youngest age up. I mean, all of our children, we have set before God and said, we are stewards of these children, but they're yours. May we not mess up what you need to be done in their lives so that they serve you. We don't want our children growing up thinking the important thing in life is, you know, having a lot of friends having a lot of money, having a lot of possessions, having a lot of fun. The important thing in life is finding out what God has planned for you with your days, with your time, with your energy, and doing it. And if that involves having a cell phone, Rebecca, good. Use that cell phone within God's plan for doing what God wants you to do with your life. It involves having friends. That's wonderful. Use your friendships to help move people along that road before the Lord. That's what it is. So uh, the firstborn was redeemed. Not only the firstborn, but you would, in the Old Testament, redeem the wife of a deceased relative. If they didn't have children. To keep the bloodline going. So, for example, you will recall the Sadducees tested Jesus using this redemption idea. They said to Jesus, the Sadducees were a religious group at the time of Jesus that did not believe there's life after death. And so the Sadducees came up to Jesus and said, so you think there's life after death? Jesus says, yeah, you know, I kind of 
am God. I know these things. And they said, well, then we got a, we got a quiz for you. And it's kind of like stump the champion, okay? So the Sadducees are going to stump Jesus. Yeah, that's really clever. <laughs> that's like the... Never mind. Uh, so anyway, they're going to stump the champion. So they said, there's this guy. He's married. And the fella dies, leaving his wife a widow. So a brother steps in to redeem the relationship. And the brother marries the widow, as they did. This is the redeemer. This, this is the kinsman redeemer. Uh, but then the brother dies. And then another brother steps in to redeem the marriage. And then he dies. And another, and another, and another. Until there are like six of these things that happen. So she dies... She goes to heaven. That's pretty good. That's happened to me before. In a trial, no less. <laughs> um, judge wasn't happy. So, it was kind of funny though. Um, so, the, the, the brothers all die. The woman dies. She goes to heaven. Who's she married to? Because she had like six of them. And Jesus' response was, you guys are really stupid. He, he says it in polite Jesus speak, but he really says, you don't know what you're talking about. See, in, in heaven, you're not married in that sense. And, 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 and so this isn't even a real issue, you know. And they went away and they were kind of stumped because they didn't know how to stump him. Kind of ironic. But that's another type of redemption. That is the word. That's the way the word was used. You redeemed the wife of a deceased relative to keep the bloodlines flowing. There was a, a, another area of redemption, a sixth by Untermeyer's breakout, that's, that would happen if, if you have an ox that like skews someone. Okay? The, uh, uh, yeah, that guy was having a bad day. He should have gone to church that Sunday morning. If you have a, an ox that uh, uh, gores someone, you, you pay the fine. But if you've got an ox that's gored someone before, he's like a known gorer. <laughs> you got a known gorer and he goes out and gores again? Death penalty. However, God did make provision, since it wasn't really you that did the killing, it's just your known goring ox, that your life could be redeemed by payment of a price and a penalty. So you didn't have to die if your known goring ox gored again. Okay. So, the owner of a goring ox. Last, there is, uh, sort of last, seventh, a blood redeemer. Now, this is a little twist on the way we've seen the word used before. But here's the situation. If someone were to kill someone in my family... Israel, the way God set it up, they didn't have a police force. It wasn't a situation where you go down and you report the crime to the DA. The DA or the police investigate it. The DA does an investigation, brings criminal charges, blah blah blah. They didn't do that. They had the Charles Bronson rule. You kill one of mine, the blood kin responsible has to go out and kill whoever did it. You kill one of mine, I'm responsible before God for finding you and putting you to death. If your argument is it was an accident, 
then what you had to do is run to one of the cities of refuge and try and get there before I get to you. And throw yourself on the, the, the elders, the community, and say it was an accident. And you'd, in essence, get tried. And if they agree that it's an accident, you're okay. If they don't agree that you're an, it's an accident, then they kick you out of the city, and at that point you're not in the city of refuge anymore, and Charles Bronson takes you out. That is a blood redemption. That's what it was. The blood redeemer. There's a, an eighth situation. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. There's an eighth word. But, but ultimately, redemption is also a ransom that was paid. A ransom that was paid. And so, if you've got someone in a bad situation, you actually, not, not as much the person, it's the money, it's the, the funds that are transacted in that Hebrew word. It, when the Hebrews were, were, were carted off in captivity, you could pay a ransom or a redemption price. Does that make sense? That's another use of the word ransom. It's, it's where it is. Now, that's social redemption. Look at the metaphorical redemption in the Old Testament because we have that as well. We have in the Old Testament God as a redeemer. In fact... Many of the scriptures that laid out the rules for redemption say, you, Israel, redeem your brother's property. You redeem the widow. You redeem, you redeem because you were redeemed by God from Egypt and slavery. So in a chicken and the egg sense, it's actually the metaphorical redemption first that gives birth or genesis to many of the social redemptions in the Old Testament. But God, God is a redeemer. And so think about God as a redeemer in light of the different definitions we use. God is a deliverer. God saves you from, from, from trouble, from travail, distress. God sets you free from bondage. God pulls you away from danger. In all of those senses, God in the Old Testament is called a redeeming God. God redeems in the Old Testament and rescues individuals. God sees a person in trouble and brings them to rescue. When Jacob is blessing uh, Joseph and Joseph's sons before he dies, Jacob is recounting his life. And Jacob had had trouble with his older brother Esau. He tricked him. Esau was mad. Esau was like really tough hunter. Jacob was kind of mamby pamby, and it was it was the kind of thing where Jacob had been afraid that Esau was going to rip his head off and, and things were not good between them and, and it was a mess and, and Jacob deceived his dad and got Esau's blessing and traded out for a bowl of red beans some more blessing and it, he had had some tough road to hoe had gone off and, and lived on the lamb for 14 years kind of figuring out how to, to get his life back together it was a tough situation and as Jacob's on his deathbed thinking back through his life, he says to his son Joseph, God, through his angels, but God redeemed me from all evil. God rescued me as an individual. I like that because there are times where I need rescue as an individual. And I like knowing God rescues individuals. Okay? 
But not only that, God doesn't just rescue individuals. We see God rescuing groups, family units, families. God rescues the nation of Israel over and over and over again. In fact, when He rescues Israel to start with and brings them through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is is, uh, uh, conquered through the Lord, the strongest army in the world. God conquers them with a bunch of water. And as they get through, Moses has a song that the people sing and, 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 and he talks about God as a redeemer. And then when Moses is giving a synopsis of this in the book of Deuteronomy later in life, he says to the Jews, don't ever forget this. You were a slave and the Lord your God redeemed you. As a nation, you belong to Him, Israel. So I think when Paul's writing redeemed, all of this Jewish... Hey, he knew that word Complete. He'd been taught how to be redeemed and how to be a redeemer and what it meant that God had redeemed as an individual, what it meant that God had redeemed as a group. He had that fully in his brain when he wrote about Jesus Christ, our redeemer. And that we are redeemed in Christ. But it wasn't only the Jewish attitude. I think he also had that Roman perspective too. And so he's writing, Paul's writing, redeemed. He's using Greek language, not Hebrew. He's using Greek language. And the Greek word redeemed is lutruo. Lutruo. It comes originally from a Greek word, which is the first verb many people learn to conjugate, luo, which is not our luo Miori, but it's luo to loose. I've seen him cut loose. You've seen lulu luo? Shh, don't want to be there. But luo, lutruo, is, is this idea in the Greek. And it's the Greek word that the Jews had used when they translated those three different Old Testament words. See? It's, it's the Greek word. And it literally means to, to, to buy someone, to buy them out. Or to buy them back. Um, it, it's a word that in Greek culture had been used, especially within the idea of, of what you do with hostages, POWs, slaves. See, the way the world was set up back then, when you needed help, let's say we've got a bunch of work we need done, and we don't want to do it. Well, one option would be to go hire our neighbor to do it. But our neighbor may not want to do it, and that's an expensive option. It's a whole lot easier just to go out and have a battle and win. And whoever you conquered, you bring them in, and they have to do it. You make slaves of them. Wars were conducted more times than not so that you could get the people to work for free as your slaves. When you carried off the booty of war, it wasn't just that you were interested in the crops they'd grown. You wanted the people to come grow your own crops. And so if you conquered some, you'd do one of two things. Either they were your slave, they were your hostage, or you would willingly let someone buy them back. Someone could buy them back. So I could go to this village, I could conquer the village, I could take away all of the kids, bring them over so that I could train them and they could grow up and be big slaves for me. Or I could let mom and dad come buy them back. There was also within Roman law the idea that slaves themselves could be bought back. They could save their money, go to the temple and buy their release from the temple gods 
or the temple system. Uh, exactly how that worked, you get different people who see it differently, but that was Adolf Deisman's big thing in the 30s that he thought Paul was talking about. The idea that you, you pay for release from slavery. And that was also done. That was Latruo. So your, your POWs, your slaves, your hostages, all of them in Roman law could, in Greek law could be bought back. And the money that was used to buy them back, much like the ransom idea in the Hebrew concept, that money was the redemption. The redemption price. So with that in hand, that knowledge, let's go to the scriptures and let's see what Paul has to say when Paul uses this word and see if this helps us flesh through some of this. So we talk about, for example, in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says, uh, verse 7, here we go, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. You all see that? We have redemption through His blood. This word redemption that Paul's using right here is that word, latruo. We have redemption. We've been set free. We've had deliverance. We've been pulled from danger. We've been rescued. The ransom price... The money that was in the briefcase was not a million dollars in small unmarked bills. The ransom price paid for us was the very blood, the physical life blood of Jesus. And that's what he's saying. And Jesus didn't do it because he was going to redeem us from uh, um, fire in a house. He did it to redeem us from the eternal lake of fire. He did it to redeem us and give us forgiveness of our sins. It's the same concept that Paul wrote in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, as it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law says, you, you don't do it, you're in trouble. You, you're, you, know, you sin, you go to hell. You, you violate God's loyalty. You, you know, all of that stuff. Christ has bought us back. He has, has ransomed us. He has, he, he, you know, we were POWs. We were in bondage and slavery to the law, and we were under its curse. Our house had been sold with us in it. And Jesus came, and He redeemed us by taking our place. See, this is a substitution. He, he not only uh, uh, paid the price, the price was Him. The law requires a price. God's justice requires a price. God's justice requires... Sin leads to death. It does. Just as surely a stick in your hand in fire leads to a burn. And, and God said, 
Jesus will redeem you. He'll buy you back by sticking Himself in your position. He'll become the curse for you. And that's what Paul means there. This is in the sense that Jesus Himself is the ransom price. Jesus is the, the ransom. In 1 Timothy 2, 5-7, through 7, Paul tells Timothy, There's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God, Jesus, gave Himself as a ransom. That word ransom, same thing. Same thing. It's another form. It's a form that's intensified in the way Paul writes it. But it, it's still, it's saying, Jesus took your place. He was your ransom. He was, in he was the unmarked bills. He's what it took to buy you back. Paul uses it in a, in a legal sense. We mix some metaphors we've learned already in this class in Romans 3, 23 and 24. Paul says everyone's sinned, everyone's fallen short of God's glory, and everyone's declared not guilty, remember, justified, declared not guilty by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just declare you not guilty because He's got the gavel and He gets to do it. He declares you not guilty. He declares me not guilty because we have already been bought back. Justice has been met. It, the, the price has been paid. He's gone to the pawn shop. He's paid the premiums. He's bought us back. There is order. There is justice within the world and God's way of doing things. So God, who Himself is just has declared us not guilty through the redemption, the purchase price, the ransom, the substitution in Christ Jesus. Paul says it more. He says, and the neat thing is, if, if, if you'd been a slave and I come and buy you out of your slavery, I buy you back, I ransom you, under the law you became my slave. But that's not the way God did it. God didn't do it because He wanted slavery and control over us. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came to redeem in the fullness of time. That means this wasn't an afterthought. God waited till the time was right, and God sent Jesus to release, to redeem, to buy back, not so that we'd be His slaves, but He was buying us back to make us His sons. That's the prodigal son's story. When the prodigal son came back, Father, I'm willing to be your slave. Your slaves live better than I'm living in the world. Father has none of it. He says, you're not a slave. You're not coming back as my slave. You're my son. Paul says it in Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He says, um, in Christ, let's see, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
We were in a dark place. We were POWs. We were under the thumb of Satan and worldly powers and sin and in this vicious cycle of sin and death and under a curse. And Jesus Christ, Himself the price, Himself the redemption, came and rescued us out of that sorry state and brought us into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been transferred. We got, we got bought back. We got redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, because you've been bought, it ought to change the way you see the world and what you do. 1 Corinthians 6, he told those Corinthians... He said, uh, Corinthian Forest Baptist Church. Oh, that was clever this morning. Um, he says, Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That bought with a price, that's the way they're translating redeemed. That's the word. You were redeemed. You were bought. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't live like... That's not true. Come on. Wake up. Understand. We've been bought with a price. I don't need to go waller in sin. I don't need to go waller around and, Hey, well, I'm God's. I guess I can do anything I want. I'm free. I was bought with a price, an expensive one. The most expensive price there is. Lewis and I had a chance last week to go see some, some cars, some collector items cars. Some of these things are worth like millions of dollars. And we're sitting there saying, well, he's sitting there saying, I just think this is the coolest thing. I'm sitting there saying, a million dollars for a bunch of metal? That's the difference between him and me. He says, don't you know, wouldn't you, don't you love to hear this engine roar? I'm sitting there saying, well, yeah, either that or listen to the Beatles. I mean, I... <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> he said to me this morning, he said, man, do you just keep thinking about those cars? I said, honestly, I haven't thought about them one time <laughs> since you just brought that back up. But, you know, those cars are nothing compared to the money, the price paid for each one of us individually. Nothing. Oh, we've got a big budget deficit in America. We've got to get this economy figured out because we're trillions of dollars in debt. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to the price paid for you individually. And if God pays that price for you, don't, doesn't that affect the way you live? Kind of puts selfishness and greed in a different light, doesn't it? Paul says earlier in that same letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the source of your, or God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Kobe Bryant, third quarter, makes this lucky shot at the end of the quarter. And, and if you were at the game, he stood in center court and kind of went like, it was arrogant, I thought. I don't mean to judge him, but it struck me as arrogant. And I did have a chance to visit with Kobe briefly. He uh, 
happened to stand in front of us just right after that for a moment. And I said to him, Kobe, I'm being honest. I really did. I said, Kobe, and he kind of, I said, pride comes before fall. He looks at me, and I said, I'm just saying, you can be great, but you don't have to be cocky about it. Pride comes before fall, you better look out. Now, I was trying to get him to come over and hit me so he'd be out of the game for the fourth quarter. <laughs> but being a Sunday school teacher, I'm kind of relegated in exactly how I can heckle. So I have to heckle quoting scripture. <laughs> Didn't work. Paul, I want to sum it up with what Paul says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23. He says, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. You, nobody owns you except the Lord. Don't be afraid of anybody. Don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid of what can be done to you. Don't be afraid of what's falling apart around you. Don't be afraid of what your retirement account says. Don't be afraid of any of it. Now more metaphors are coming next week, but our points for home are on this point. Because number one, Jesus himself said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This metaphor, Paul didn't come up with it. The metaphor of God being a redeemer, that wasn't something that, that Moses came up with or even Joseph's dad, Jacob. This is God's metaphor. God is our redeemer. He knows it, He planned it, and He's telling it to you and me. I, God, have bought you, Mark. I, God, gave me, Jesus Christ, your redemption. Your ransom. That's the reason He came. He didn't come simply to feed 5,000 people. He didn't come simply to perform miracles. He didn't come simply to model for you and me how to live a good life. Oh, I like to read the life of Jesus. I'm not a Christian, but I like to read it because He was a good man and He teaches me how to be a good man. Hogwash! If that's all He did, I'm a good, lost man. But the point is, he didn't come just to do that. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to spill his blood. He came to pay the price because he wanted to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom because he wants us with him for eternity. That's his metaphor. And that's what you've got. He redeemed us, Paul says. He gave himself as a ransom, he says. He delivered us in his son. We've been set free. We are His. Well, what are you afraid of? If nothing can separate you from His love, and nothing can separate you from His redemption, and nothing can... Why on earth would we, when we're faced with anything... Oh, I understand, we've still got old man within us. Paul says it uh, 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 this way. He says, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies... Redeemed, same word. In Romans, you know, there's, there's the now, we've been redeemed, but there is still some not yet. So yes, when something bad happens, I fret sometimes. There is uneasiness within my spirit. I don't like 
uh, 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 distress. I don't like when people are hurting. I don't like when there's anxiety and worries and concerns. I don't like to hear stories about people. Who, I got a note this morning about someone who's just in a lot of hurt right now. I, I, if I'm in their shoes, I can't just say, well, don't worry. Because there's going to be, you're not fully there yet. But I can tell you this, you shouldn't worry. You should say, Lord, this is your problem. I can't wait to see how you're going to fix it and use me to fix it. But I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't let it fret you to death. You shouldn't let it overcome your faith. Let your faith overcome it. You should not let it ruin your day. Because you have a victorious God who has set you free, not just as a church and a people, but individually. And He's rescued you, and He's ransomed you, and He has bought you back. And on your deathbed, you'll be able to say to your children and your grandchildren, God delivered me. Because that's what we have. I've saved the best metaphor. Right, best. That's bad speaking. I've saved a really great metaphor for last, so I hope to see you next Sunday. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for redemption. Thank you for redemption by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that we stand redeemed, redeemed. Your child, forever. Thank you, Lord. We readily confess our Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord, precious Lamb of God, price paid, penalty incurred. Deliverer. And Lord, if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that hears this message, I pray they will get a hold of us somewhere, somehow, up here, back there, through the internet, through whatever, that your message will receive them and they can be delivered and transferred into the kingdom of your Son, in whom we pray, through whom we rejoice. Amen.